0: It is a pleasure once again to be with you this evening. We welcome you if you are visiting with us. We especially are glad that you have chosen to be here tonight. There's a lot of places you can spend a Saturday evening and we're certainly uh, blessed to have your presence here and I count it a blessing to be able to be here with you and to study a portion of God's word with you. Last night we talked a little bit about the Christian family in relationship to the importance of Father's. And that mothers and fathers together need to work as a team. And both are important and both need to be involved. But we called out fathers to lead the charge in the home in raising up good, godly children. And we talked about Psalm 127 verse 1. We read that last night. I'll read it again this evening. It says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And this is a true passage, and I believe that Christian families, that Christians such as you and I need to be seeking to build our families, building our homes upon the truth found in God's word. And when we do that, our lives will be better for it, our families will be stronger for it, and our congregations thus will be stronger as a result. But what happens when something in the Christian family goes wrong? What happens when trust in a relationship is betrayed? What happens when there's problems in the home? When there's a family member that is supposed to be someone that loves and cares about you and is looking out for you, they are supposed to be someone that has your back and they are the very ones that cause you pain or that hurt you. And we're going to talk tonight about some ways to deal with these type of family struggles. I want you to know this evening that God's design for family relationships, as I'm sure you recognize, is that husbands, wives, and children all fulfill their godly roles the way that God has called them to, and that when we do that, it works out beautifully. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, the scripture says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And if you're here this evening and you're part of a good, godly, Christian family who are not perfect, none of us are perfect, we all make mistakes. Every member of the family, including dad and including mom, makes mistakes. That's not the point. But when you're in a good godly Christian family that says we're gonna put Christ at the center and we're gonna seek every day to do things according to his will to fulfill our family roles, it's a beautiful thing. And there is a lot of joy and a lot of blessing that comes with being a part of a family that follows this design and this structure. But sometimes that's not what takes place in our families. Now I want to talk a little bit about what those relationships in families are built on. And why these troubles come sometimes between family members. You know all relationships not just family relationships. But all relationships are built upon a foundation of trust. That is at the core of every relationship that we have. There's a passage here in Proverbs 31. Where he's talking here about the virtuous woman. And in verses 10 through 12, he says, "'Who can find a virtuous woman, "'for her price is far above rubies. "'The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, "'so that he shall have no need of spoil. "'She will do him good and not evil "'all the days of her life.'" And I think this illustrates for us what is at the core of every relationship, but especially those family relationships. It is trust. When we are married to somebody we trust our spouse we have a level of trust in that relationship an expectation that comes along with that trust when it comes to our parents that relationship should be built on some level of trust and we have an expectation of the way that our parents should treat us based upon that trust that exists in the relationship same with our grandparents our aunts our uncles our children our brothers our sisters etc all of our family relationships and in fact all of our relationships in life are built upon this idea of trust Now I want to present this fantastic bar graph that I created to you, it's not very scientific. It's just my creation of what works in my mind about the levels of trust that there are in relationships. So agree or disagree, this is my position. I think that we have little to to no trust in strangers for the most part, right? Uh, My kids, I'm probably not going to just pick a random person off the street and say, hey, will you watch my kids for the day? I don't trust them. I don't know them. I have no way to be sure that they're going to take care of my kids, right? We don't trust strangers. It takes some time to get to know people, right? We have acquaintances in our life. Maybe we have a little bit more trust in that relationship than we would have with a complete stranger, but still acquaintances, a person we don't really know well. Probably not going to have a high level of trust there. Our coworkers, people that we spend a lot of time with uh, every day, maybe we're not super best friends with them. We spend a lot of time with them, though. We'll we have a little bit more trust with them. Our friends, those that we specifically, we, we like, we hang out with, we spend time with, those people we're going to have more trust in. And then our family Generally speaking, we're gonna have the most amount of trust in those members of our family that we have grown up with, that we have shared most of the experiences of life with. And specifically when it comes to marriage, our spouse is usually the number one person in our life that we have placed our trust in. And we have the highest level of trust, generally speaking, in a relationship, in a marriage between a husband and a wife. Now I want you to consider when trust is betrayed, when problems happen, when somebody causes hurt and pain. If a stranger off the street causes me hurt or pain, they say something that's insulting or they do something to me or whatever it might sting for a moment but I'm going to move on with my day pretty quickly and it's not going to bother me because I don't know them and I don't really care to be offended by a complete stranger they can say what they want I'm going to move on If an acquaintance of mine says something, it might hurt a little bit more because there's a little bit more of a relationship there. Same with coworkers. But especially as you start getting into friends, it's gonna hurt and sting a lot more when a friend betrays you, when they do something that hurts you, when they stab you in the back or cause you pain in some way. But it's going to especially hurt and especially be painful when you walk through hardships of life caused by family members, caused by the people that are supposed to be the closest ones to you in life, the ones that are supposed to be at those highest levels of trust, and especially, of course, in that marriage relationship between husbands and wives. It's no wonder why these are the types of relationships that hurt so badly when there's friction and when there's trouble. And when there's selfish decisions that are involved there. And you know that's what's really at the core of fractured relationships. You may be in the crowd tonight and you may can think of family members or Those that maybe in the past, hopefully you don't have those tonight, but you might. It's a reality of life when we're dealing with humans that sometimes relationships, they get in trouble. Sometimes relationships don't last. Even among family members, sometimes there's fractures and there's breaks. And there's family members that don't speak to one another for years because of something that has happened in that relationship that has hurt one or both parties. And the reality is that most of the time those hurts and those breaks and those fractures in our family relationships are a result of this. They're a result of selfish desires and decisions. Listen to what James says in James chapter 4 verse 1. He says, "From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members?" He says, "Why do you war? Why do you fight? Why do you argue? Why is there conflict?" It comes from the lust in your members. It comes from the passion inside each one of you, the the desires that each one of us have, those selfish and and sinful desires. And I take you back to the godly design of a family. When a husband is being a godly husband seeking Christ first and a wife is being a godly wife seeking Christ first and children are being taught to put Christ in the center, yes, there's some things that you have to work through and there's mistakes that are made and all of that, but it works. It works and the relationships are good and we work through problems that come. But when a person is not focused on Christ and instead they're focused on themselves, when they begin to be selfish in the relationship, only seeking what they can get out of that relationship, either with their spouse or their parent or their child or their sibling, and they become a user... And they become, they they look for those ways to gain their own desires and their own passions, and their own lusts, and to fulfill those things in that relationship. And they don't care about the other person. That's where these sometimes very terrible family problems come in. And I want to just give you some examples tonight of things that are very real, that real people deal with within their families. And you may know or be involved in a situation or know of somebody that's involved in a situation where one family member has become verbally or emotional or emotionally abusive to someone else. Where it's constant negative things. Telling somebody how they're worthless. Telling somebody how every, everything that they do is wrong. They can't do anything right. And it's just a constant barrage of negativity. And pointed attacks verbally and emotionally. And that will take its toll on somebody. Especially when it's a family member doing those things. There are situations where a family member begins to be caught up in things and they're a chronic liar. And they're chronically deceitful and you don't ever have any idea if what they're saying is the truth. Because they constantly are just telling lie after lie after lie. And that can be extremely frustrating to deal with in a relationship. There's child abuse that can take place because of selfishness. Because a parent loses control and is angry, and is frustrated, and out of control, and goes well beyond the norms of corrective discipline, and abuses their children, because they themselves are selfishly out of control, and not being Christ-centered. Why do we have adultery in marriage? Why do we have spouses that step out on one another? It's because of selfishness. It's because of lust, and it's because of pride. And what is within that person that says, I'm going to be selfish and seek my own, and not seek the other. And so that leads to adultery and that leads to divorce, and we have broken marriages. And we've already talked this week about the negative consequences not only to the spouses that break apart, but to the children that are involved in those marriages. Those things take place because of those selfish desires and decisions. Same thing with alcohol and drug abuse. You may have a family member that has gotten tied up in these types of sins, and they're very selfish sins. Alcoholism and drug abuse is about fulfilling self, it's about fulfilling the flesh. And that's a very difficult thing to deal with a family member that you love and that you care about. But you see them continuing to hurt themselves with these addictive substances. And potentially hurting others as well as a result of that. There are folks that in marriage will physically abuse. Not only that verbal and emotional abuse, but physical abuse. Their wife. Because they are out of control. And they are living a godless life. Life, A self-centered existence instead of a Christ-centered existence. And they take out all of their frustrations from their own failures in their life upon the person they should be loving and caring about the most. Sometimes that can take place with sexual assault and sexual abuse as well. And some very terrible situations that people find themselves in at no fault of their own because of a selfish family member that decided to take what they wanted. There are some family members that you may know that had a gambling or financial problem and led their family into financial ruin because they were out of control and unwise and can't make good decisions. And that type of irrational financial behavior can hurt a spouse and children and can cause all sorts of lifelong scars. All of these sins and others that we could continue to list, they are betrayals of that godly trust that we are supposed to be able to have in our family. And with those betrayals of trust, come a lot of consequences. If you've had a family member that has hurt you in some way, you have faced the emotional pain and the turmoil that comes with that. You've faced that grief every day in waking up, that sadness, that feeling of pain and grief over what this person that is supposed to love you has done to you. You may have felt anger and resentment and a desire to get even at them. Because it was unfair what they did to you. Maybe you're in a situation where you legitimately did not do anything to deserve that. And somebody that was very selfish took out their own lusts and their own selfish decisions out on you. And that may fill you with anger and resentment toward them and a want to get even. Maybe because of the way that your family member has treated you, you've become obsessed with that. And it's all you can think about. And every day you wake up and you carry around that bitterness. You carry around those thoughts and that anger of what that person has done to you. And it's almost what, what you use to power you through the day. And it's the wrong source of motivation, but it's what you have. Because it's your anger and it's your grief and it's your experience that you've been through. And so you hold on to that and you become obsessed with it. Other people get into a sorrow and a depression so deep that they don't want to live life anymore because of the pain that has been caused them by somebody else. It creates awkward and uncomfortable situations at family gatherings and family holidays and situations where family members begin to take sides when there's a conflict in a family. And some people take the side of that person, other people take the side of this person and it creates fractured family relationships that goes beyond just the original hurt or the original pain. And all of those things will have a negative impact on our congregations. When our families are struggling, our congregation struggles. The strength of our congregation is in the strength of our families. And we need good, godly, Christian families that are not treating each other selfishly. They're not causing each other pain and hurt, but they're seeking the best for each other. And they're putting Christ at the center of everything. But you and I both know and recognize that that's not always the case. And sometimes people are just selfish, and sometimes people are just cruel, and we have to know moving forward that we have two options for how to handle those situations. Option number one is that we we become embittered, and we hold on to that bitterness. Bitterness is holding on to the anger, the pain, and the resentment caused by the betrayal of trust. You have that option. You can choose to hold on to your anger, to hold on to your pain because it's what you've been through. It's what that other person has done to you. You didn't deserve it. You were just in this situation. I, have a, I am just to feel this way. I have a right to feel this way. I have a right to be angry and I'm going to hold on to that. But if you do that, you're going to hold on to that bitterness for the rest of your life and it's going to affect every aspect of your life moving forward. Your second option is the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is choosing to let go of the anger, the pain, and the resentment and move forward. I want to talk a little bit about these two concepts tonight with you. Bitterness and forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31, the scripture says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now that word bitterness there in that passage means acridity, especially a poison. And that's exactly what bitterness is. Have you ever been around an embittered person? You can almost feel it emanating off of them. It is a poison that not only will poison the person that is embittered, but it will poison those that are around them. And when a mom or a dad or somebody in the family relationship is is embittered and is holding on to anger and pain and resentment toward another person, The children will see that and they will feel that and they oftentimes will pick up those same sorts of feelings and it will affect them. That bitterness though is a poison that will slowly deteriorate your spiritual existence, your spiritual life, your spiritual strength. It will cause you to focus on self, to focus on the physical, to focus on those things that will not carry you through to eternity, to eternal life, but rather it is a very selfish decision to hold on to that bitterness. Now this... This is a concept that's tough to overcome. When we've been holding on to something for many years, because of a pain that's been caused us, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of strength to be able to move forward. And we're going to talk about some ways to do that tonight. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness is something that oftentimes we look inside ourselves and we don't see because we're shrouded in it. And when we're in this idea of of bitterness and we've been holding on to these things, sometimes it's hard to see that in ourselves. But we need to look very distinctly inside, look in, in the mirror of our own mind to determine whether or not we are holding on to things that someone else has done to us in the past, And are we dwelling on it? And are we thinking about it every day? And are we letting those things affect the way that we feel about that person? The way that we interact with that person? Because if it does, and it changes our interactions, and it changes our thoughts, and it brings negativity to our mind, then we're holding on to at least some level of bitterness. And this passage says, be careful that any root of bitterness take hold in you. Because not only will it affect you, but thereby many can be defiled from that bitterness that's within your heart. And I want you to know that God has called us to respond differently. As humans, we feel that pain, we feel that hurt, and as a result, we get angry, and we get sad about what has happened, and those feelings are natural. But God is calling us to deal with those in a healthy spiritually or spiritually healthy way. In Romans chapter 12 verse 17, the scripture says, "Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men." Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And I want us to recognize this evening that when family relationships fracture, when there's trouble in the home or with an extended family member that has caused a pain in your life that's very real, it's very legitimate, and I'm not marginalizing that at all. But what God is calling us to do is to not respond in the same way that they have treated us. Because what they have done to us is evil. What they have done to us is self-centered and it is selfish. But if we respond with bitterness and with anger, then we are doing the exact same thing to them. And it's actually only going to hurt us. But God is saying to overcome that evil that has been done to us by doing good things. And in this passage, he mentions specifically the idea of enemies. Enemies that are hungry, that we feed them. Enemies that are thirsty, that we give them drink. And if our family relationship has fractured so bad, even that we consider that family member our enemy... The instruction is still to allow God the justice and that place of vengeance. That it is his job to judge. It is his job to carry out that justice against the evil that they have committed. But to recognize that if we in turn commit evil towards them, then God's vengeance will be on us as well. And we as Christians should not actively and openly and willingly seek to bring the vengeance of God upon ourselves. And that is exactly what we are doing when we recompense recompense to man exactly what he has given to us. When we repay what our family member has done to us in like kind. We are bringing that same vengeance that God has promised will be upon them. We are bringing it on our own head. What I want to encourage you to do, brothers and sisters, tonight is when it comes to that pain and that hurt that has been caused to you, that fractured relationship that you have with your family member, that you don't seek evil or revenge or vengeance against them, but you seek to do good to them, to be able to move forward with forgiveness. We overcome that bitterness within our heart through a choice to forgive. Ephesians chapter four, verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Forgiveness, I think, is one of the more difficult concepts in Christianity to carry out effectively. It's easy to talk about. It's easy to say that we should do. And it's much harder day in and day out with our actions and with our thoughts to actually carry it out. But this is what God has called us to. And forgiveness is not something that we do. And then if they hurt us again or they sin against us again, then we're off the hook. You know, the disciples, Peter specifically asked Jesus about this concept of how often we must forgive someone. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. And Jesus' point here is not to put a number on the amount of times we forgive his point was that we cannot say i'm going to forgive and then when it happens again we lose that and we go the other direction the point that jesus is making here is that forgiveness is something that is continual it is a process a daily process that we walk through towards that person and i want us to recognize this evening that our choice to forgive that other person will affect our own forgiveness Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, Jesus taught, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now anytime you're reading through scripture and there's a passage that says something about you will not be forgiven or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven or something along those lines, we ought to stop and we ought to go back and reread that again to make sure that we are not doing that thing that Jesus is teaching will keep us away from God and away from eternal life. And in this case, what Jesus is teaching is this idea of forgiveness, this attitude of forgiveness toward others that have harmed us or that have hurt us. And if we're not willing to do that for them, why would we expect God to do that for us? God is only asking us to do the very thing that he has offered to do for all of us, for our great and many sins against him. How often have we done things that have hurt our Heavenly Father? How often have we done things that have caused Him pain? And yet we expect forgiveness from Him. The reality is, He expects that forgiveness from us as well toward those that hurt us. You remember the story in Matthew chapter 18 of the unforgiving servant. This story Jesus tells is about this servant that owes a great debt. And this is an enormous debt. A debt that would have basically been impossible to pay off. And he owes this to his Lord. And he goes to his Lord and he begs, please, to be forgiven of this debt. And the Lord has mercy on him and he forgives him of the entirety of that enormous debt. And then that same servant that has been forgiven of so much walks out and he finds a fellow servant that owes him by comparison a very small amount. And he demands that that fellow servant repay him all that he owes. And when that fellow servant could not pay him that, even when he begged for forgiveness, that servant was unrelenting and he had that fellow servant thrown into prison until he was able to pay everything that he owed. What did the Lord think about that servant who had been forgiven so much and was unwilling to forgive himself? Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And now listen to this passage. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. And the comparison here is a very real one to us we have been forgiven an enormous debt for the sin that we have committed against a holy and righteous and perfect God. And if you are honest with yourself and recognize the immense nature of the sin that you have, the debt of sin that has been canceled by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you are thankful and appreciative of that forgiveness that has been extended to you, you are being asked by that same righteous, holy, and perfect God to do the same for those that hurt you. Now, I want to talk about some things that forgiveness is and that forgiveness is not. I want you to know that forgiveness is not saying that what that person did was okay. It's not. But some people feel that way. If I forgive and I begin to move forward, it's like I'm just accepting what happened. It's like I'm just saying it's okay what they did. It's not saying that at all. What forgiveness is, is it's letting go of that pain and that resentment. That pain that is actually going to destroy you over time. That bitterness that is actually a poison to your spiritual life and to your soul. And it's letting go of that. And it's choosing to walk forward. It's not saying what they did was okay. What they did was very evil and what they did was very wrong. And it wasn't right. But you're only hurting yourselves by holding on to it. Forgiveness is not continuing to be a victim Some people say, well, if I have to forgive, that means I have to go walk back right into the same situation and and get taken advantage of and get used and get hurt all over again. And that's never what the scripture tells us we, we have to do. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not about going right back and just being a doormat and letting somebody hurt us. Forgiveness is about moving forward with peace in our own life. Forgiveness is about a right relationship between us and God that can't be in place if we're holding on to bitterness toward that family member that has caused us pain. Forgiveness is not forgetting what happened. You know, a lot of times people say, forgive and forget, right? That's what God does, that's what we need to do. Well, that's not even what God does. That's a misunderstanding of scripture. And they'll say, well, look at the passage that says, he remembered their sins no more. Do you think it literally means God suddenly lost the ability to remember that? God is God. God could remember everything. The point of that passage is that he's going to remember it against them no more. He's not going to dwell on it. He's not going to hold it against them, those that have been saved, those that have been forgiven. It's not about forgetting what happened. There are some very, very terrible things that can take place. Very big betrayals of trust in families. Pain that is very, very difficult to get over. And you will likely never completely forget that. It's not about forgetting it. But it is about not dwelling on it. It is about choosing to move forward and not allow yourself to think about that pain every day. And what I will tell you is that when you institute this philosophy of every day choosing not to dwell on it, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to let it affect my mind. I'm not going to let it affect my decisions. That every day that passes by that you do that, it gets easier and easier to not think about. It gets easier and easier to not let it affect your day. But in the beginning, it can seem very, very difficult. But the more you choose not to dwell on it, to move forward, to recognize the evil that's been done, to recognize the injustice that's there, to say, I'm trusting in God for vengeance, and I'm gonna move forward with peace and forgiveness. And the more you can do that, the easier it will be day by day to move forward and to get past it. Forgiveness is not based on their repentance. There's an important distinction that we're going to make in just a moment about repentance. But I want you to know this basic idea of forgiveness that's mentioned that we've talked about tonight thus far. This is an attitude of forgiveness that is not based on a person's repentance. Has nothing to do with whether that family member ever apologizes, ever says sorry, ever makes amends, or ever changes. The command for us to be forgiving people is there regardless of their actions. It's based on our attitude and our mental decision to do. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It is not something that you make the decision to do and suddenly I've forgiven that person and I'll never think about it again and it'll never hurt again. It's not the reality of life. Forgiveness is a continual commitment to not become embittered, and to not allow yourself to feel and to hold on to that anger and that pain. Forgiveness is not a restoration of trust. By choosing to forgive that person that is not saying you trust them again, they may have hurt you in such a way that they don't deserve your trust back, except with a very large amount of repentance and a rebuilding of the trust that existed once in that relationship. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. Choosing to forgive someone does not mean that you trust them the same level that you did before. And in some situations, you would be wise not to, because there are some travesties and some evil that is carried out on family members, that that trust should not be easily given back. But that has no bearing on the attitude of forgiveness that we should be able to have in our own mind. Forgiveness is not the same as Reconciliation. It does not mean the relationship is restored. It does not mean that we're back to being happy and we spend all of our time together and we're best friends again. Now that can certainly happen, but that's not what forgiveness is. But forgiveness can be a first step toward that. And it is a necessary first step if you want the relationship to be restored. Forgiveness must be there. Everything that we've talked about forgiveness thus far has been about the attitude forgiveness. And this is the distinction that I want to make very clear. The attitude of forgiveness is a command to you and I from our hearts that we forgive regardless of what has happened, regardless of any repentance that has taken place. It is an attitude that we choose to have toward that other person. Mark 11 verse 25, Jesus said, when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any that your father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Notice that he put no conditions on this forgiveness. And he, he did not indicate that there was any conversation, that there was any restoration here. He said, when you stand praying, when you are alone, when it comes to your relationship with God, what you need to do is to forgive and have an attitude of forgiveness. Because that attitude of forgiveness will give you an internal peace with God that will allow you to move forward and stay Christ-centered in your life regardless of what your family member that has caused you hurt or pain chooses to do in theirs. But there's another way that forgiveness is used in the New Testament, and this can be a bit confusing at times when we read through this, because there are other places where it seems to indicate that Jesus does put a condition on forgiveness, One of those is Luke chapter 17 of verse 3. Where he says, take heed to yourselves if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Now, a casual reading through that would seem to indicate that our forgiveness is based on their repentance. And if they've chosen not to repent, then we don't have to forgive them. But that's not actually what Jesus is teaching at all. The forgiveness that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 17 is what we would call Reconciliation, or a restoration of relationship. And a restoration of relationship or a reconciliation with a person that has hurt us or harmed us or done evil against us is something that is conditional upon their choice to repent of that and to be better. The attitude of forgiveness is something that is non-conditional and it does not matter whether they repent or not. We are still called to be a forgiving people for our own sake. Not for theirs, for ours. So that our heart will be pure before God. So that our relationship with him will be right. So that we can keep that Christ-centered mindset that God has called us to. Which is impossible to do when we hold on to bitterness and are unwilling to forgive. But I want to spend the next few minutes this evening talking about this idea of reconciliation. This second level of forgiveness, if you will. That is conditional upon the other person's actions. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. And this is that idea of that second level of forgiveness, if you will, that conditional level of forgiveness that Jesus talks about is that idea of Reconciliation. And if we come and we worship and we recognize that we have done something, notice this is kind of flipped in the reverse. If we know that somebody has ought against us, if we know that somebody has been offended by us, if we know that they have some kind of problem with us, then it is our responsibility to go to them and to seek reconciliation with that brother or that sister before we go and worship God. And I just want us to recognize here that God desires that reconciliation. God desires a restoration of relationships, especially when it comes to two Christian people. And when we're talking about Christian families and Christian family members, you may be a Christian here tonight and the family member that has hurt you or caused you pain may not be a Christian, but they might. And specifically as it relates to two Christian people, two Christian family members, God desires a reconciliation to take place. But there's some steps that have to be there in order for that to happen. One of those is that it has to be possible to reconcile. Romans chapter 12 verse 18 says, if it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I'm gonna tell you tonight that there are some situations where reconciliation is simply not possible. Now remember, this does not mean the attitude of forgiveness has been taken away from us and suddenly we don't have to be forgiving. That attitude of forgiveness is always there. We are always called to that no matter what. But if we want a relationship to be restored, to be reconciled to this person, it has to be possible and sometimes it's just not. First of all, that person may have passed away. And you may have never had the opportunity to resolve that. It doesn't change the forgiveness that can still take place. You can still forgive them and move forward without the bitterness and with the peace in in your heart. But it will be impossible to reconcile. You may have a situation where your family member does not want to reconcile. And they have no interest in having a relationship with you. And in that situation, it's not possible to reconcile. It doesn't change the call to forgive them. But it just means we have to be okay with the fact that the relationship will never be the same. When when should we seek reconciliation? Not only when it is possible, but when it is prudent. There are some situations where it's not wise to reconcile. And Romans 16 verse 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions... And offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. And avoid them. Now this is talking specifically of course of the idea of church. And marking those that are purposely trying to do evil. And cause division within the church. But the same is true in our personal life. The same is true when it comes to family members. When there are people that are just evil. And they have no regard for God. And they have no regard for good and they want to do evil and they want to do wrong and they want to continue to hurt and to continue to cause pain, it is not prudent to reconcile that relationship. It is not prudent to try to restore trust there because that person is seeking to live out an evil life. And those are the people that we're instructed to mark, to watch out for, and to avoid. And that may be a family member that you have to say, you know what, reconciliation is not a wise idea because they don't need to be around my children. They don't need to be around me. They don't need to be able to continue to inflict the physical or emotional pain that they have been. And sometimes we have to make that very hard choice. Not out of bitterness. Out of an attitude of forgiveness. And a desire for that internal peace. But a recognition that it's unwise for our spiritual life and the spiritual lives of our family. To be around them. And those are very real family situations that some face. But when it is possible... And when it is prudent, it is something that we should seek. It is something that we should try to accomplish in that relationship. And so I want to submit to you that a common case might look something like this. If the family member that has hurt you or that you have had a falling out with is a Christian family member and you're both Christian people and you know better and you know that it's not good that there's a fracture and you know that it's not good there's a break in the relationship, you know you've been called to forgive. So you make the choice that I'm going to have that commitment, that continual commitment to forgive them, and I'm going to work on letting go and not dwelling on all those things. And then you say, Is it possible to reconcile with them? They're willing to. Then it's possible. Is it prudent to reconcile with them? I don't think their desire is to inflict evil and inflict pain. I think we just got out of hand in this situation and I think they want good things and I want good things, then I need to humble myself and say, yes, it's prudent to try to reconcile and try to rebuild a relationship. And when that happens, we're given a very specific process that we can go through to try to accomplish this. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, "'Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, "'go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. "'And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother.'" The first step in this reconciliation process when you've gone over all of those checklists and you've said, all right, first of all, am I being forgiving toward them? Regardless of what they do, have I forgiven them? Am I being forgiving? That's step number one. Step number two, is it possible to reconcile with them? If it is, is it prudent? Is it wise? Are they somebody that it's wise to rebuild and seek to rebuild a relationship with? If it is, then yes, I'm gonna move to this next step. And that means I'm gonna reach out to them. One-on-one. And I'm going to go to them and I'm going to say, look, I don't know how we got to this place, but I, knew, I do know here's some behaviors that happened that were very hurtful, that were very painful, but I don't want to be embittered. I don't want to be angry about it. I want to be able to have peace with God and I want to be able to have peace with you. And I want forgiveness for both of us and I want us to be able to seek to start rebuilding that trust between us. And your goal there is that hopefully they say, I want the same thing. I'm tired of not having a relationship. I know we need it. I know God wants it for us. And so I want to try. But maybe they don't. And if you're seeking that reconciliation and they say, You're a big baby. (laughs) I never even did those things. I can't believe you're still whining about that all these years. And they've added to the hurt, and they've added to the insult, and they've added to the pain. You may have to reevaluate that those steps and say, is it still prudent to seek that reconciliation? And if it still is, and you still believe that that's what God wants in that relationship, then you go to step number two. If He will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. The next step that Jesus gives is to take one or two people with you so that they can sit by as an impartial party and listen to all of the words that are said so that there's no confusion. There's no he said this and she said this or any of that sort of situation. And I might make a recommendation to you that you speak to your elders, that you take a couple of elders with you or very spiritually mature people that you don't take your buddies that are going to be on your side. You want these people to be spiritual. To be God focused. And to, and to be impartial in the situation. And then you take them with you. And you try to have that conversation again. And you say look we have this problem. It's very hurtful. It's very painful. I want to move forward. I want to seek to rebuild a relationship. But it's hurtful when you don't even acknowledge that this has happened. And if they still refuse to hear you with those witnesses present. The third step of that is is Matthew 18 and verse 17. It says, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. And I'll submit to you that it is at this step that the elders will be able to guide the process. Hopefully, if you have used them as witnesses, then they're already very, very familiar with the situation and what's happening. But at this point, you've got somebody that has refused three different times to hear the instruction to make something right that they've done wrong and they've refused to repent at that point. And so at this point, the church gets to decide how to handle that situation and church discipline may be in order and there's a lot, a lot more of those processes that can take place. But at this point, it's probably pretty clear that it's no longer prudent to seek reconciliation there if they are refusing to do what's right and to seek good things. Now for our last few minutes this evening, i want to talk about what reconciliation might look like. If you have these situations and you want to make it right and you want to rebuild the relationship, I wanna give you two different very applicable ways that this reconciliation might play out. One of those is found as an example in Genesis chapter 31 with Jacob and Laban. And this is the idea of a reconciliation that ends with a peaceful separation. That reconciliation takes place but that both parties recognize that we need to peacefully move forward in our own directions. And this happened in this story and if you'll remember, this was a family relationship that started off rocky from the beginning. Jacob went to search for a wife and he found a woman named Rachel that he wanted to marry and he agreed to work for her father Laban for seven years in order to marry her. And so for seven years, he toils to marry this specific girl. And at the end of those seven years, you know what Laban does? He deceives Jacob and gives him the wrong woman to marry. He gives him his older daughter, Leah. And so suddenly, Jacob has worked seven years for this man that is now his father-in-law, only he has been deceived and been forced to marry a woman that he didn't desire, that he didn't love. Now, he was given Rachel as well, but coerced into working another seven years. So now he's worked 14 years for a father-in-law that deceived him and tricked him. Now, at the end of those 14 years, Laban wants Jacob to stay on, And so he asks Jacob what he wants in order to continue to take care of Laban's herds. And Jacob says, if you'll allow me to take the spotted and the speckled out of your herds, you'll keep all of the good ones, I'll keep those, I'll build my own herds, that'll be my payment. And so he agrees. Well, God blesses Jacob. And Jacob's herds become very large, and Laban's begin to dwindle. And Jacob becomes very wealthy, and Laban gets less wealthy. And suddenly Laban And Laban's sons are looking at Jacob and they're not very happy about the fact that his fortunes have changed so much. And in verse 1 it says, he heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our fathers. And that which was our fathers hath he gotten all this glory. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban and behold it was not toward him as before. And the Lord said to Jacob, return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred and I will be with thee. So Laban is upset at Jacob now because of his fortune. And so God tells Jacob, it's time to get home. So Jacob loads up all of his family, Laban's daughters, Laban's grandkids, without saying goodbye, and Jacob starts trekking home. Now, unbeknownst to Jacob, Rachel had stolen some of her father's idols along the way. And Laban realizes this and realizes that they have left. And so he rushes after them and chases them down. And after three days, he catches up to them. And he begins to forcefully search through all of Jacob and Rachel and Leah's and all of their stuff, searching for these idols that he has accused them of taking, which Rachel did actually take. Now Rachel has hidden them underneath herself inside the tent. And she uses a feminine excuse as to why she cannot rise. And so she hides those idols and Laban is unable to find them. And, it, and here's Genesis thirty-one, twenty-two. I kind of ran over it. Uh, Laban was told on the third day that Jacob fled. He took after him. Verse thirty-six. Jacob was wroth after being searched. And chode with Laban, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, what hast thou found of all thy household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren that they may judge betwixt us both. Now, here's a father in law and a son in law that are not having a good relationship. It started off rocky with the deception of Laban years before. Now, with the sealing of these idols, the taking off without so much as a goodbye by Jacob, and this is a problem. And so Jacob is angry and he's yelling at Laban, why are you accusing me of this stuff? Show me what you've found. I bet you can't. And he can't. And what did they decide to do as a result of this problem that they had? Laban said to Jacob, behold this heap. and Behold this pillar, which I have cast between me and thee. This heap be witness and this pillar be witness that I will not pass over this heap to thee and thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of the Father of their father judge betwixt us. Now I want you to notice this. He says, we're gonna build this altar, this heap, and it's gonna be a symbol to us that our problem is done here. You're gonna go your way. I'm gonna go my way. I'm not gonna cross this point to you for harm. You're not going to cross this point to me for harm. Now notice, they left it open if it was not for harm, that at some point in the, in the future, per, potentially there could be a restoration there. There could be a rebuilding of some of that trust. But this was a reconciliation that took place. They made an agreement. They talked out their problems and their issues and they agreed on how they were gonna solve it. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. Then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat bread. And they did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. They spent time together. They agreed they were going to be done. No more problems. They were going to forgive one another. They were not going to seek evil or harm toward one another. And early in the morning Laban rose up. And he kissed his sons and his daughters. And he blessed them. And Laban departed and returned unto his place. Sometimes there may be a relationship in in families. Where this is what reconciliation looks like and what it needs to look like. Where we've forgiven and we've talked it out and we've made a decision. It ends here. We're not going to seek harm toward one another. We're only going to seek good things. We're going to give each other a hug. Laban kissed his daughters. He kissed his grandkids. But they said, I'm going this way. You're going this way. And it's going to be better for all of us. And I want you to know that that's a biblical way to reconcile some relationships where trust may not need to be rebuilt or where there's conflicts there that we're sure will probably pop back up in the future and that may be the way that we have to resolve it but here is what I think God wants from us and it's the story of Joseph and his brothers and this is where I think we should get to if at all possible in these reconciliations In Genesis chapter 37, verse three, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Remember that Jacob uh, showed favoritism towards one son in particular, and that was Joseph. And it's because Joseph was the son of Rachel, the woman that he originally wanted to marry. He made him a special coat. His brothers were envious of him because of this favoritism that exists in the family. Joseph also had some dreams that indicated his brothers were gonna bow down to him. They didn't like that very much. So they decided one day that they were going to kill him. Now Reuben, one of the other brothers stopped them from that but as a result, they decided to sell him as a slave. In verses 23-28 it says it came to pass when Joseph was coming at his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty for there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread and they lifted up their eyes and looked and behold a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then they passed by Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now here's a broken family relationship. These brothers wanted to kill Joseph and they settled for selling him as a slave. Now we may have gone through a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of terrible things from family members. But I'm guessing not one of us has been sold as a slave by our own brothers. This is a terrible situation for Joseph and his family. Now we remember through the course of this story, Joseph rises up eventually to become second in command of all of Egypt. He's put in charge over storing up enough grain for the seven years of famine that are coming. And when that famine arrives, Joseph's brothers need grain. And so where do they go? They go to Egypt. Where there's grain. And they meet back up with this brother. That years ago they had sold as a slave. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn. Among those that came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over all the land. And he it was that sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves. Before him with their faces of the earth. Now this is Joseph's opportunity. For years right he's probably been holding on to bitterness and anger and wrath and been wanting revenge and now he has the opportunity to carry that revenge out against his brothers. Except is that what we see with Joseph? It's not. In fact we see a forgiving attitude towards him but he does want to judge the character of these brothers before he decides how to move forward with the relationship and so he puts them to a test. He says, if you be true men, when they had told him they weren't spies, they had a father, they had a younger brother back home. He said, if you be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go, ye carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me, and so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. Now listen to this. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear Therefore, is this distress come upon us? One of the things you don't get in the earlier reading when they actually throw Joseph into the pit is this perspective. How that as they were grabbing their brother and they were ripping that coat that meant so much to him from his father off of him and they were throwing him down into that pit talking about spilling his blood, that he was pleading with them, that he was begging them to stop, that he was asking them to please show mercy And to not do that evil thing against him. And now here they are. And they're sure that it is that sin. And the fact that they did not listen to his wails. And did not listen to his cries for mercy. And that that's why they're in this position now. But they go back. And they convince their father to allow them to take Benjamin. And they arrive. And they go through another series of of tests that Joseph puts them through. And finally he has judged their character to be worthy. For they no longer disregarded the life of Benjamin as they had disregarded his. They talked about how special Benjamin was to their father. And how they must protect him. And that they would do anything to bring him back to their father. And Joseph could see that they had changed. That they had repented of the mistakes that they had made in the past. And then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer for they were troubled at his presence. Now his brothers were filled with fear when they recognized that their brother who they had sought to kill and then sold as a slave was now second in command of all of Egypt and could do anything he wanted with them. But Joseph said to his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, do not be grieved nor angry with yourself that you sold me hither for God did send me before you to preserve life. Now that's a spiritual mindset. That's a forgiving attitude towards people that had done an immense amount of wrong toward him. But not only did he show that attitude of forgiveness, he took it to that next level. That restoration, that reconciliation of relationship with them. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. And not just any land, in the best of the land. In the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread according to their families. Joseph not only showed the attitude of forgiveness that gave him the internal peace to serve God as he needed to, but he, based on their repentance chose to reconcile that relationship to the point that he was providing for them and taking care of them and nourishing them, the very people that had caused him so much pain. And I want you to know this evening that that is possible in the relationships that you have tonight that have been broken. That is possible in your family relationships where there has been pain and there has been hurt in the past. There can be forgiveness. There can be restoration. And you can even potentially get to this point. If you have that situation where it is possible, it is prudent then do everything that you can do to reconcile that relationship. Joseph showed an immense amount of godly character here. And if we, you and I, not the other person, not the family member that has caused us the pain, but if you and I will choose to have that same kind of godly character and approach our broken relationships and our falling out with our family members, if we'll approach that with that type of godliness and that type of forgiving spirit, then regardless of what they do, now or in the future, you and I will have a peace with God that allows us to move forward, to be Christ-centered, to have joy in our life again, and ultimately to reap the reward of heaven. And so we're gonna close the message this evening with Colossians 3 verse 13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. I hope tonight that this message has been encouraging to you. I know these situations can be hurtful, they can be painful to deal with, but we serve a powerful and a wonderful God. And if we'll trust in him, we'll put our faith in him and we'll choose forgiveness over bitterness, then we can improve the lives of our families. We can improve the relationships with those that may have been fractured or broken. If you're here tonight and you need the church, we're here for you. If you need to obey the gospel in baptism, you have an opportunity to do that tonight. If you need your relationship with God restored and that internal peace that we've talked about tonight, we're here for you. Please come forward and sit on a front pew as we stand and sing.